Well, Beulah Church family, before we get started, uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that uh, this weekend's uh, my one-year anniversary as your lead pastor. Well, thank you. Um, Thank you, I appreciate that. Uh, As I've been reflecting on this past year, I've just been filled with so much gratitude, uh, so much gratitude that God has called Christina and I with our kids here uh, back to Edmonton to be with uh, Beulah with you. So it's just been such a joy to be doing this this last year and I look forward to many, many more years of doing life together and um, seeking God and his kingdom with one another. Well, over the last several weeks, we uh, covered a lot of different topics in our Asking for a Friends series. We talked about the thing beneath the thing, uh, questions about sex and pornography, food, anger, uh, getting high, suicide, and parenting and control. And throughout the series, uh, many of you submitted questions uh, that we were compiling together for this last weekend, uh, where Dr. Simon Shea and I would be addressing those together. So Dr. Simon Shea, if you're not familiar with who he is, he is a registered counseling psychologist, speaker, and author, and him and his wife, Helen, along with their children, have been a part of our Beulah Church family for many, many years. He actually helped me design this series, Uh, so I'd love for us to give him a big round of applause as he comes on stage. Well, you know, as he makes his way on stage, uh, I just wanted to take a moment particularly to acknowledge our, uh, and thank our seniors. Uh, as a church that is multi-ethnic, multi-generational, and multi-campus here in Edmonton, our vision is to awaken greater Edmonton to King Jesus, which means sometimes we're gonna be preaching about topics that may be more relevant to certain generations over others. And I wanna acknowledge that over this last series, there have been some messages uh, that uh, may not have been as applicable to our seniors. So Beulah seniors, I just wanna thank you Uh, Thank you for leaning in. Uh, Thank you for loving and praying for our church family, uh, for those who are part of our church family and who are not yet, as we've been opening up the scripture to cover these topics. All right, well, welcome, Simon. (laughs) Yes, do it. (laughs) (laughs) You almost pulled me off the chair there. It's been working out. flimsy, eh? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, we're uh, actually gonna be addressing five questions together. And uh, over these next uh, several minutes, we're only really going to have five minutes to address each of these five questions. Uh, Because in fact, you know, every one of these questions could be its own sermon. Uh, So why don't we just jump right into it and get started with the first question. Okay, the first question. I know there are dangers to the prosperity gospel. Do you have any thoughts on this? Is there a way to live in humility and expectation that God is good, does good, has promised good to me without going over into arrogance or it belong or being about my faith, prayer, and actions? Yeah. Well, so why don't we start answering this by defining what the prosperity gospel is. The prosperity gospel is the belief that God will reward growth in your faith, specifically with health and wealth. So the prosperity gospel believes that Jesus not only saved you from the eternal consequences of your sin, but he's also saved you from earthly sickness and poverty. 
The prosperity gospel believes and teaches that if you give, you will then gain material compensation from God. So what that means is if you aren't experiencing health and wealth, the prosperity gospel says it's your fault. They blame you, it's your fault, uh, and you actually have a lack of faith is what they teach. Uh, So in a sense, they talk about prayer as a tool to force God, to bend God's arm to grant you, or to kind of make make him give you health and wealth. So when you hear the definition of what the prosperity gospel is, I pray and hope that immediately you have this aversion to it, kind of this repulsion to this, because this is a false gospel. Why is it a false gospel? Uh, Well, if you take a look at John 16, 33, Jesus says, you will have suffering in this world. It's not a popular passage we like to talk about or like to think about, but Jesus actually said, you will have suffering in this world, but take heart, be courageous, for I have overcome the world. The other thing I wanted to address, and this is, I mean, if you... If you find yourself believing in the prosperity gospel or having thoughts around that, I just wanna encourage you to turn to James chapter one because James chapter one presents to us a theology of suffering. Now just think about that for a second, right? A theology of suffering. It's not something we like or often talk about because who likes pain, right? No one likes pain. We, we, that's, that's why there are things called pain Killers, and I don't know about you, but the moment I get a headache, I pop an Advil, right? Because I know what it can turn into. I don't like that. We tend to avoid pain, yet we see in James 1 that there is a purpose and a point to suffering. There's actually a theology to it. So James chapter 1 verse 2 says this, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Right, just consider that, right? Consider it a great joy when you experience victory. No, when you experience trials, joy with trials. What is James talking about? Well, in verse three, he says, because you know that the testing of your faith, it produces something. Suffering produces some. Suffering is not something that, you know, our world says just get rid of it manage it away, move it away. It it shouldn't, you know, it it gets in the way of life as maybe God intended it. But the scriptures say this, there's a purpose to testing. There's a purpose to trials. And the purpose is that it produces endurance. And then in verse four we read, let endurance have its full effect. So that, let endurance have its full effect Let us walk through and embody and walk through and receive the trials that God gives us and allows us to walk through with joy so that we may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So think about this, right? We talked about a theology of suffering. If a theology of suffering is completely absent from our faith and our walk with Jesus, what this passage shows us is that we cannot be mature and complete. That we will actually lack something if we don't have suffering. What do you think, Simon? 
Well, I, I, I think the biblical emphasis is on trusting God because of who He is, yeah. not because what He can do to please us. Mm. I believe a way to live in humility and expectation God is good, not only in good times, in bad times, yeah. Yeah. in the worst of times, without going to arrogance, is to cultivate a healthy faith and a healthy mind to equip us to be with the complexity of life. Life is complex. Life is not positive all the time. A healthy faith is a faith that embraces pain, suffering, loss, and trial. A healthy faith is a faith refuses to gloss over our woundedness with hollow positive thinking and quick spiritual solutions. It refuses to ignore the basic tenet of human life we will hurt. One thing that hinders us to cultivate a healthy faith is called spiritual bypassing. Spiritual bypassing is about sidestepping, praying away the pain and tough challenges in favor of quick spiritual solutions. Remember, Jesus never gave a pat answer. Mm. Healthy spiritual support is, I'm sorry you are hurting. I wish you did not have to go through this. Spiritual bypassing is, God wouldn't give you more than you can handle. Mm. Healthy spiritual support is, it's scary. I get it. I am with you. Healthy spiritual, spiritual bypassing is, faith removes Fear. Mm. A healthy mind embraces what I call the power of and, A-N-D. Something can be equally true and normal in life. Life is beautiful and life is brutal. Mm. They are are equally true. Practice the courage to deny neither. You are resilient and you need a break. They are equally true. You never quit. And quitting when something is not a good fit for you. Mm. They are equally true. You are very careful. And you tested positive for COVID. They are equally true. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead did not deliver him from the suffering on the cross. They're equally true. Sometimes God cures the cancer, and other times he does not. Mm. They're equally true. Mm. So when we embrace the power of end and we equip our mind to deal with the complexity of life, we open to the full range of what it means to be human. Yeah, I love that. We will rejoice, and we will hurt. Mm. In doing so, we are more emotionally prepared with a strong emotional immune system and, and resiliency. Yeah, I love that. I love that because the prosperity gospel simplifies, mm-hmm. but that's not life, right? Yep. That's not faith. Yep. Okay, so let's go to the second question. Um, how does the church interject in a person's decision to see a doctor to die by suicide without making that person feel shame 
for their choice. And once again, all of these questions were sent in by you, by our church family, in response to uh, one or more of the, of the messages. So, Okay. I think my take to this question is, over the last 20 years uh, of my practice as a psychologist, uh, I have done a good number of home visits uh, with terminal cancer patients. Psychologists do house call too. And I do many, many house calls. These are patients with lung cancer because of asbestos. I remember clearly, I really struggled with this home visit. These are men and women in the late 60s, in the late 70s. They are dying, no cure. Usually they die within two years of the diagnosis. And I attend most of the funerals. What do I say? What do I do? When, what do I ask when I'm with them? And these visits with terminal cancer patients really, really force me to face my own mortality and my own fear of dying. Now, do you know what I have learned from all these home visits? I found out my dying patient just want me to be there, to be by their side, to walk with them in the journey of dying. I did ask one question though, and that is, do you have any regrets? Do you have any regrets? And to my surprise, they all say no. My wife is well looked after. I sold my business. I have done everything I want to do in my life. I remember I visited one client, a woman, at the palliative care unit in the hospital. I asked, what are you doing today, ma'am? She said, I am writing letters to my girlfriends, thanking them for our wonderful friendship over the years. Now, in one home visit, my patient informed me that he had chosen to die by medical assistant in dying, which is MAID, M-A-I-D. I know at the visit, I'm not responsible for my patient's decision. I'm not responsible for his decision. He is, and he's an adult. I know I'm responsible to show up with compassionate presence and maybe explore any new reason to continue living. I know I'm responsible to ask, have you told your two adult daughters? Yes, I have, Dr. Shea. And what was their reactions? They were devastated. But now they are more accepting. How do you come to this decision? Dr. Shea, I am on oxygen. And for me to get up and walk from here to there, I am totally exhausted. There is no living. I was an active man. I was a successful businessman. And then he told me the three drug injections. I have to certify by two doctors and to choose a day when I have a sound mind to do it. And he said, my two daughters will be there to be with me on that day. I have met one of his daughters. And I said, I'm glad your two daughters want to be there with you on that day. And you are not alone. And he said, yes, I'm not alone. Dr. Shea, thank you to be here with me. Well, 
that story really shows us the complexity of, of this issue, mm -hmm. right? It's not like we said before, it's not a simplistic, there is the power of end. But what you said there, I don't know if you picked up on it, there's a powerful framework in boundaries, because this is a, it's a question about boundaries. What if I have a friend who is considering this? Uh, and you can fill in the blank with suicide or with, and you can fill it in however you want. And the framework that uh, Simon talked about was the difference between what we are responsible for and what we are responsible to, right? Are you responsible for this or are you responsible to them? If you have someone in your life who is wrestling with a difficult or a permanent decision, uh, you need to ask yourself, am I responsible for them or am I responsible to them? You are not responsible for another person and their decision, but you are responsible to them. You're responsible to pray don't underestimate the power of prayer in transforming people's hearts, in shaping their minds, in guiding their decisions. Don't underestimate the power of the word of God. The word of God is sharper than any, any double-edged sword, right? It can cut through bone and marrow and change and shape people's hearts and minds and attitudes. So when you are with someone, don't underestimate not only the power of prayer, but the power of the scriptures and don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit in shaping people's hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, like I said, uh, I mean, <laughs> every one of these questions could be a whole message, right? So um, we have uh, a few more to go. So let's get to our next one. Uh, if my ex-husband is a follower of Jesus and has been a slave to sexual sin and adultery, how can he declare Jesus as his Lord and Savior but not change his behaviors? Well, my take to this question is it doesn't matter whether you are a follower of Jesus, an evangelical, a Pentecostal, a Catholic, a Buddhist, a Muslim, or an atheist. What makes a relationship healthy is not the absence of messy mistakes. What makes a relationship healthy is when both people take responsibility for their own mistake. You cannot change the other person. To make a decision to change is taking responsibility. No decision, no learning. No action, no learning. Even a bad decision, you learn something from it. Now someone can say, I do take responsibility very seriously. How come it's so difficult to change my unhealthy behaviors, such as porn, adultery, my temper, my verbal abuse, my overreacting, my controlling, my insecurity, my shame of feeling inadequate. I think if you scratch, if you scratch any narcissistic person, you will find a wounded boy or a wounded girl grow up to become a wounding man or a wounding woman. We all have baggage. We all have some history of dysfunction in the family. It is important to find out the root problem 
behind the unhealthy behaviors are that the changes will not be consistent or long-lasting. Now, as a follower of Jesus, you have God's presence within. And you refuse to take responsibility for your messy mistakes. God will give you over to all the consequences of your unhealthy behaviors. I'm glad you laid that out, right? Because there is something that's common to humanity and then there's something that happens in us when we make the decision to follow Jesus. We are a new creation in Christ. There's redemption that happens and as a result, we have the Holy Spirit that can guide us in our making of decisions, in our trans- the transforming of our behavior, uh, in, in our thought life and in all that through the work of the Holy Spirit and that's called uh, sanctification. Sanctification is an interesting word. We've talked about the Holy Spirit and what work that the Holy Spirit can uh, place in transforming our hearts, but that word sanctification in the Greek actually has the word holy in it. Sanctification is the word hagiasmos, which has the same root as holy. So sanctification is about holiness. So what does that look like? If you take a look at 1 Peter 1, I wanted to read verse 13 to 16 for you. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, right? Don't stay in that. But as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. What we see in this is a call not only to Christ, to be awakened to him, to make that decision to follow him, but we also see a secondary calling after that, which is to be holy and to grow in holiness. And that's, that, and that's really what this question uh, is getting at, that impor- the importance of sanctification. Yep. All right, uh, question four. This is a long one. Um, I work for AHS and I'm a nurse that works in a clinic and in a hospital setting that has been doing terminations of pregnancy. My moral code as a nurse says I have to help those who require my assistance without casting judgment. My question is this, am I complicit in sinning when I do my job and assist the patient or the doctor? My role in one area is to set up equipment and record the things occurring. My role in another is to help the woman push out the baby that is being born asleep or so prematurely that I'll likely pass away. Am I sinning? My role is to do no harm and not to judge, but I feel like the lines are so blurred. Well, Daniel, my take to this question is, uh, I think I believe a central function in our corner of humanity following Jesus is to be an agent of restoring the original good. Mm. The God's initial pronouncement about his creation was that it was good. Our job is to restore God's original design of truth, love, light, and life. A couple of personal issues in any job are, am I doing more good than harm? Or am I doing more harm than good? Am I able to be agent of good and so obey God in this role of my job? 
It's never enough to simply say, I did what I was told. The, the infamous Nazi Germany defense was acting under orders. In this case, I don't think there is a win-win situation. It is a personal conviction against a hospital doing a legal business, a legal service. Now, when you don't have win-win, you don't want lose-lose either. Driving home after every shift working in the hospital, you have to ask yourself, am I sinning? Am I sinning? Am I sinning? You suck the joy out of your life. That is lose-lose. Stress is unavoidable, but miserable, become miserable, is optional. And when you believe in your role as a nurse, you are doing more harm than good, yes, you are sinning. When there's no win-win, and you don't want lose-lose, you aim for something, 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 a decision, an action, something I can live with. Remember the power of and. You never quit. And quitting when something is not a good fit for you, they're equally true. And remember, you're not there to please everyone. You're not there to make everyone happy. You're not there to be responsible for everyone's well-being. The woman, the mother, the unborn, the doctors, the hospital, God, and you. You end up pleasing no one. Healthy self-care is not equal to selfishness. Healthy self-care, and I'm speaking to the woman here, every healthy self-care is the cornerstone of every woman's mental health and well-being. This is such a complicated question, right? Your wife mm -hmm. is a nurse. Um, I talked to two of my friends who are oncologists, really wrestling with this question. But when we see this question, there are some of you here who are like, oh, I'm not a nurse, or uh, I am a health professional, but I don't, I, that doesn't have anything to do with me. And maybe there's a sense of, okay, well, I'll just kind of zone out on this one and, and maybe the next one will be for me. Uh, but when you take a look at this question and you read it, there are a couple things that are universal to all of us. Number one, there's always a thing beneath a thing. There's always a question beneath the question. And as followers of Christ, um, we have, you know, when you feel a tension in your conscience, and you are about to do something or you are asked to do something and there is a wrestle in your soul, you can't underestimate, you can't negate that, you can't, you just, you know, put that under the carpet. You need to bring that before the Lord and ask, okay, is this, you know, is this, is this the tacos from last night? <laughs> or is this the Holy Spirit? Or is this, you know, my professor that is telling me, like, like, who is it? What is this? And a lot of this does have to, it, it does also involve how we discern the voice of God too. So consider this, okay, Colossians 1, 9 to 14. 
And for the individual who submitted this question, I wanna pray this over you, and actually I wanna pray this over every single one of us as we continue to make decisions that are more in the gray than they are in the black and white. Okay, so let me pray this over us. Uh, For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. So I ask, Father, that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I pray, Father, for the individual who submitted this question and for all of us, that we may walk worthy of the Lord, knowing what it is to fully please you, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us with power according to your glorious might, so that we may have great endurance and patience Lord, fill us with joy. Help us to live always giving thanks to you who have enabled us to share in your inheritance. God, I pray that you would continue to rescue us from the domain of darkness. Thank you that in you we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Colossians 1, 9 to 14, I wanna encourage you to read through that, write that down, pray, but if... In addition to that, if you find yourself in a similar situation, uh, open up to the book of Daniel. Read and study the book of Daniel because Daniel, living in Babylon, faced a lot of the same sorts of tensions that we are facing today. All right, let's go to the last question. Last question. What does surrender look like? How do I surrender our things to God? How often do I need to surrender to be free? What does surrender look like daily? Is it hourly or minute by minute? And how do I connect with other people who want to be free of these things? Yeah, so there's, there's two components. Why do we surrender and how do we surrender? Okay. Um, when we think about the why, right? Why is this even a thing? Like, why is this even a question that followers of Christ should ask? Uh, take a look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. What we see here in these two verses is the fact that Christ died for you. He died for me, he died for us. And why does that matter? That matters not only because that allows us to experience eternal and everlasting life, but also, also, he died for all so that we can actually experience everlasting, eternal life beginning today. So when we read this, he died for all so that Those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. What is that? That's a response, right? What Paul is talking about here is, hey, this happened, so what is your response to the death of Christ on the cross? He wasn't just some random human that died on the cross. His death affects every single one of us for eternity. And he offers us this decision in response. Okay, how am I then, how am I now going to respond to the fact that he died so that I can experience everlasting life? Well, that's the why, but the response to this is actually worship. 
So when you take a look at Romans 11, we read this, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. This is a response to what Christ has done to us, right? The response is surrender. The response is, man, God, because of what you've done for me, because of what you've done for us, because of the new life that we can now experience in life, now and for eternity, I want to surrender. I want to give you my all. I want to give you my everything. So that's why it says in Romans 12, 1, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to surrender. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So why do we surrender? How do we surrender? What, why is this even a thing? It's actually a thing because of what Christ has done for us. It's a response. Well, my take to this question is uh, recovery from your thing is a journey, not one and done. One and done is a trap. It is spiritual bypassing. Yeah, that's right. Relapse management um, is an important part of the recovery. You learn the triggers that cause your relapses. Uh, the goal of relapse management is your relapses are farther and farther and farther in between and less intense. Mm. The good news is our brain is retrainable. Yeah, that's right. The brain that God created us is retrainable. Yeah. When I work with my client on recovery from porn addiction, recovery from affair, uh, on recovery from um, or, or emotional regulation to be less controlling, less overreactive, less taking things personally in relationship. I offer them healthy coping tools and you practice these tools regularly until the day you see Jesus. I don't care you're 95 years old. You practice them faithfully to retrain your brain. I think that's the essence of surrender, which is the condition of Jesus called to follow me or taking up one cross. Consider your present, self-directed, independent life is over. Mm. American Franciscan priest Richard Raw once said, we don't think our way into a new way of living. We live our way into a new way of thinking. Mm. You practice the tool, regularly retrain your brain, gradually you will experience freedom from your thing. Now this is especially important when you need to rebuild trust in relationship. I'll tell you one thing, love is unconditional, but trust is conditional. First, people need to see that you are genuinely remorseful broken, repentant about your thing. Second, people need to see that you learn, you learn some new tool, new habits to control your thing. Third, the most important, people need to see that you're able to sustain your change. Sustain the recovery from your thing. Not just for one month, not just for two months. 
you want sustainability, and they want to see sustainability, and that is surrender. That is following Jesus. Amen? Yeah, amen. Okay. Hey, thank you. Can we thank Simon and Shay for being with us? Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, we've journeyed through a lot of different questions over the series, and I'm reminded of what Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Did you notice that he actually used different words to describe different parts? Dr. Simon Shea is a counseling psychologist, right? He has learned um, what it looks like to love the Lord your God and to help others do that with our minds, right? Even as he talked about how our brains are retrainable and in and through great practices in counseling. And when we open up the scriptures, we see the gift that we have, that we actually, as followers of Christ, don't need to try to do this on our own, but we have the help of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit, right, who is going to be moving and leading us and shaping us and giving us the strength and the power to be able to make those shifts and those changes that we have learned. There's self-discovery, there's God-discovery, there's others' discovery. You know, this whole series has been about digging deep into these questions that are sometimes uh, more in the gray than they are in the black and white. And I pray, our team, our, 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 the prayer of our team has been that this series would not just be the beginning and the end of your thought toward these questions, but it would be an introduction to digging deeper into the word of God and to asking him for the questions that you're asking, not the questions that your friends are asking, but the questions you are. Because we know that eight weeks isn't going to answer all the questions that both our friends and our, you know, ourselves are asking, right? I mean, it's just not enough. So that's why we wanted to end this last week with a time of prayer and healing. 